Hey, let's read this, Psalm 110. Jesus is going to reference this passage of Scripture in the text we're looking at this morning in Matthew chapter 22. And so we'll take a read through it here. It says this, a Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of mourning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, and he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Okay, let's turn to Matthew chapter 22. Let's pray as we come to God's word this morning. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that um, your spirit just speaks to us through the word. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the word made flesh. And so, Lord, we love the written word because the written word leads us to the living word. And Jesus, this morning, we just want to have you touch our hearts, Lord. We want to do as Mary did and sit at your feet and just listen to you teach. And so, Lord, we just come before you. We open our hearts to you. We invite you to speak to us by your spirit. We pray that your spirit would just anoint this time that here together, Lord, that there would be a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we might know you better, that we might understand Jesus better, that, that our vision of who you are would grow this morning, Lord. And so, God, we just ask your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on. So we're in Matthew chapter 22. Um, Chapter 22 begins with the third in a trilogy of parables that we began to look at last week, last chapter. Uh, So let's just get our bearings here. We're we're in the temple. Uh, It's the Passion Week. It's Tuesday before Jesus is crucified. He's he's teaching the crowds. There's been the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, just a couple days earlier when the crowds sang their hosannas to the son of David, Uh, hosanna in the highest. Jesus had boldly come into Jerusalem. He had cleansed the temple. It was quite the scene. He had made that proclamation during that cleansing of the temple. He said, my house, not my father's house. He said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. He went out that night to the village of Bethany where he spent the night. And we looked last week as he came uh, back into Jerusalem and passed that fig tree that was by the wayside and cursed it. And before the eyes of the disciples, this tree just began to shrivel from its roots. And then he made his way back to the temple. And it's there as Jesus was teaching the crowd that the chief priests and the elders came to him and they asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? I mean, you think about the scene, it's like kind of sometimes hard for us to picture what was going on. But remember this, this is the week of Passover. I mean, it's the highest holiday for, for the Jews. Josephus says that on a busy year, 200,000 lambs were sacrificed at Passover in the temple. And so Jesus like kicking over tables and money changers and driving animals out. Like it was a big scene. This was a big opportunity for these chief priests and elders to be making their money and the whole thing going on. Everything was ramped up for Passover and Jesus had disturbed it. So when they come and they say, you know, who gave you this authority? Uh, By, you know, by whose authority do you do these things? This was an official delegation that came to Jesus. And in response to them, in answer to them, Jesus told three parables. We looked at the first two last, last Sunday. The first one declared, I did these things by the authority of the Father whom you have rejected. You rejected the ministry of John the Baptist. You rejected the Father. Then the second parable declared that Jesus did these things as the authority of the Son, with with the authority of the Son. The Son whom they would, as he told in the parable, reject and would kill outside the city. And then Jesus declared to them, therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and it will be given to a people who will produce its fruits. 
And so now we, we pick up this passion story, the account in, in Matthew chapter 22. We come to the third parable in this trilogy that is answering this question. By what authority do you do these things and who gave you this authority? And this parable is going to tell us that, firstly, Jesus did it by the authority of the Father, first parable, the authority as the Son, second parable, and by the authority of the Holy Spirit, third parable that we'll see this morning. So let's check it out. Verse 1 says this. Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. And so here's the picture. God the Father uh, sent his spirit to seek a bride for his son. There's a great picture of that in the Old Testament. That's in the story of Abraham. You remember that Abraham sent his servant back to his home country to seek a bride for his son, Isaac. And so the servant went. He prayed, God, direct my path. He came to a, a well and he said, Lord, if, if, a, if a young woman comes and she offers to uh, give me water and water my camels, then I'll, I'll know that this is the young lady that, that you have for Isaac. And that's exactly what happened. Rebecca came. And eventually the servant brought Rebecca back from the land of Chal the Chaldeans to uh, Canaan to be the bride of Isaac. Abraham sent the servant. The father sent the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is, is seeking a bride for the son. Looking for a bride. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is to invite people to the wedding. Scripture tells us, John, that the Spirit of God is working to convict the world in regards to sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. And, and all the while, he is pointing people to Jesus, saying, Look at Jesus, look at Jesus, come to the wedding feast uh, and, and seeking to win a bride for Jesus. And so whom did he call first? Well, this parable kind of gives us a little bit of insight. And the New Testament elsewhere does, that salvation is first to the, to the Jew. Salvation is first to the Jew, then the Gentile. Remember Jesus, he, here he is, he's in Jerusalem. He'd found no fruit on the fig tree. He'd cursed it. We saw that last week. It had withered from its root and he had come to Jerusalem. He was dealing with the nation. He was dealing with the rulers of the nation. And the first invitation to the wedding, so to speak, had already been given through his ministry, through the ministry of the disciples. They had, they had traveled Israel. They had proclaimed the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But chapter, verse 3 goes on. It says this, but they would not come. When they were invited, they would not come. Verse 4. And he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went off. One to his farm and another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. You know, don't, don't, you know I, I get, every year I get usually the opportunity to, to uh, be involved in four or five weddings. And for a while, I used to go, man, oh, another wedding. Okay, well, you know. And one of the ones that were really meaningful were when, you know, there's relationship with that, like an old family relationship or relationship with the church. But I get other calls too. So, you know, it's not always connected to here. It's like, oh, okay, well, I have no idea who you are. You want me to do your wedding. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, see how the calendar works. But, you know, Every time I go, I find that there's something that's really joyful about a wedding. You get there, and it's, it's a celebration. It's a party. You, you have joy with those who are having joy. You, you share a meal together, and maybe there's dancing and the whole deal, and it's a great time. And it's interesting that God says, come to the wedding, you know. It's not like, come to something awful. It's like, come to something great. Let's celebrate together. And so, you know, just as... as uh, Israel rejected the authority of the Father and the Son. What we see here is so they would reject the ministry and the authority of the Holy Spirit. The Father was still inviting. Come to the wedding. He'd sent his servant, the Spirit, to send out that message. When we read the book of Acts, we see the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that happens out not long after these words of Jesus here in, in Matthew chapter 22. In fact, all the way to Acts chapter 7, 
what we see is the ministry of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the church and the ministry of the church, the proclamation of the gospel, was to the Jew. Come be part of the bride. Come to the wedding. Well, how did they respond? Well, we see it in the book of Acts. They rejected the ministry of the apostles. They rejected the ministry of the word. They rejected the message of the gospel and they persecuted the church. Just like they murdered Jesus. They then went on and persecuted the church. In fact, it was the same leaders who would not change their minds and believed at the teaching of John the Baptist who persecuted Jesus and then who persecuted the early church. The same leaders who stoned Stephen, the first martyr of the church. Just before they stoned him, in the account of the story of Stephen, Stephen preached the gospel to them, and as he wrapped up his message, he said this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist who? The Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. And Acts chapter 7 tells us that at that, those leaders began to gnash their teeth and, and they were enraged at him. And Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, the scripture says, looked up and he saw into heaven. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But those leaders, they, they stopped their ears. They, they cried out at him and they dragged him out of the city and they stoned him. The ministry, the authority of the Holy Spirit who was pointing to Jesus through Stephen's life, continuing to invite the Jews to the wedding of the Lamb was rejected after Pentecost. And that's what this parable is revealing to us. This is a picture of God's dealings with Israel. And so verse 7 says this, The king, the father, was angry, and he sent his troops, and he destroyed those murderers, and he burned the city. After Pentecost, God waited 40 years, but in AD 70, the Romans came as God's instrument of judgment, just as Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had come generations before. And at the hands of the Romans, the temple was destroyed, the city was burned, the army was sent. Verse 8 says, Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And so what was the message of the Father? Go to the Gentiles. Go into all the world, Samaria, Judea, to the ends of the earth. Go to the Sunshine Coast. You know. Go to Gibson's Landing. Proclaim the gospel. The meal's ready. The door's wide open. Come to the wedding feast. The Spirit and the bride say, come. All who are thirsty, come. That's the that's message of the kingdom. It's an awesome message. Come. Come eat. Come drink. Verse 10. And those servants went out into the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And so imagine that. The bad and the good come. That's the church. Did you know that? That's the church here. The good, the bad, some might say the ugly. But I, I don't know. I wouldn't say that. Some might say that. But the good and the bad are gathered. And seriously, this is the church. The Spirit just says, come. Come on in. Come on in. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. So, so Jesus says this in his parable. There, there will be people in the church, people uh, who are at the wedding who will count themselves as one of us, who do life with us, who sit at the table with us, who warm a chair with us, but they're not properly dressed for the meal. What does that mean? Well, there's a, there's a great insight. Calvin, I'll get you to flash up that one scripture verse that I stuck in there, man. It's kind of got a graphic to it. I don't know if you can read that back there, but I want to read it to you in a little bit more in its context. But this is from Isaiah 61. It says this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. 
He has covered me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with, beautiful, with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. You know, when we talk about salvation and being properly clothed for the wedding feast, salvation is personal. Salvation is individual. And we have to accept what God has given to us in his son Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus is Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. We're going to declare that about him in eternity. You are my righteousness. I am not righteous. I need you, you know. And the reality is this, is though the invitation is, is made, you, you, you got to dress appropriately for that wedding feast. You, you can't make it in on your own. So who's dressed appropriately? Who's the one who's really saved? Who's the one who's safe at that meal? And it's the person who says this, I, I need a savior. I, I don't have the answer. I'm not righteous. Jesus, I need you to robe me in righteousness. Jesus, I need you to clothe me in salvation. And so the man in the parable who was not wearing the wedding garment represents this. This is what he represents. He represents those who profess salvation, but who don't actually have it. They profess it, but they don't possess salvation. He's the person who imagines Really, that his own goodness is enough. You know, the scripture tells us that all of my righteousness is as filthy rags before Jesus. I could put on all of my righteousness, and when I come into his presence, it's just like I'm wearing rags. So I need to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, robed in salvation. Our righteousness cannot compare to that which is offered in us, and so uh, offered to us in Christ. And so, we see her at, the, at this feast, the good and the bad are there, and the father begins to separate out those who are not dressed appropriately. Verse 13, the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. You know, I, I read that and I think for us this morning, what, what do we do with that? Well, I would say this. You have to realize that sitting here in our midst is not enough. It's not enough. But you know what's enough? Jesus is enough. Or who is enough? Jesus is enough. Jesus is more than enough. And it's the one who says, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I surrender my life to you. Jesus, I invite you to come into my life, to be the Lord of my life. You're my Savior. You are my righteousness. Clothe me in your righteousness. That is the one who is right before God the Father. And the Father says, or Jesus says in this parable, that, that there will be a judgment for those who are without Jesus, and it will be swift, and it will be sure. And so, you know, once again, Rather than accepting the teaching of Jesus and responding to this parable that he, was, that he was sharing, rather than repent, these leaders that had come to question his authority began, uh, uh, decided that they would, they would argue with him and they would attack him. Look at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and they plotted how to entangle him in his words. These were guys that were bent on destroying Jesus, but... There's a theme that hangs over this that's even bigger than these guys, and I think it's important for us to see this morning uh, a reason for these questions and this attack that they're going to bring Jesus. Uh, these leaders were fulfilling something in Scripture that they did even, not even recognize that they were doing because Jesus was going to die as the, the Lamb of God. It was the week of Passover, and it was necessary that the Lamb be examined before Passover. If any blemish was found on the lamb, I mean, if we're talking about an actual lamb here uh, at Passover time, if there was blemish found on that lamb, it could not be sacrificed. And so Jesus, as the lamb of God, he, he needed to be publicly examined. And who better than the leaders of the nation who were his enemies, but as they were attacking him, what they did not realize is that they, they were... 
they were examining him to see if there was flaw in him. They're, we're going to see they, they questioned him in regards to political things, ethical things, theological things, personal question. But they're going to find no fault in him. Of course, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look at verse 16. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and that you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Just butter them up a little there. Verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? This whole thing's a trap. You know, it's the Pharisees and the Herodians coming together. Or the young disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Of course, we know who the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were this religious sect, the, the leaders. They kept the law to the finest detail and minutia. And uh, they gathered here with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were essentially a political party amongst the Jews. They were people who were loyal to King Herod. And these two groups were totally polar opposites, political and philosophical enemies. But they had one thing in common. They hated Jesus. So they joined together in unity in that hatred of Jesus and they, they uh, attacked him. And their question, really, I mean, you read this question, it's a brilliant question. They thought they had him cornered. You know, if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, then he's going to create problems for himself and his ministry amongst the, the Jews. If he says, no, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, he's, he's going to have problems and be in trouble with Rome. And so it's either trouble with Rome or trouble with the Jews. But Jesus, verse 18, aware of their mouth, said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Of course, these questioners, right, they're, they're trying to, cover up their malice with, with flattery, with buttery speech, and Jesus sees through the whole thing. And verse 19 says, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius, and Jesus said to them, Who's, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Don't you love that story? Don't you marvel too at the answer and brilliance of Jesus? Well, history, Caesar claimed to be God. Uh, he, he put his image on the coin, obviously. And he claimed that he was God. And so the Jews felt that by paying taxes to him, they were essentially kind of in a roundabout way acknowledging him as such. And so they felt really caught when it, became, when it came to the taxes. But if you didn't pay, well, you know what happens when you don't pay your taxes. Oh, I hope you don't know what happens when you don't pay your taxes. <laughs> the government comes looking for you. And they didn't want to be arrested. And so Jesus' answer is awesome. The coin is stamped with Caesar's image. So give to Caesar's that which is Caesar's. But here's the real point. Man, you and me, we're stamped with another image. The image of God. Therefore, give to God what belongs to God. Man, you and I belong to God. And so, you know, I, I think there's some really good practical lessons in this quick little discussion, right? I mean, obviously, the scripture teaches us here and, and elsewhere that Christians, Christians are called uh, to honor and, and obey the leaders, the authorities that God has set in place, like it or not. You know, I just look around the world today, you know, I just keep my political opinions to myself, but... You know, I don't know how your week's been, but look, uh, the fact is, is that Christians have a dual citizenship. Did you know that? We're like dual citizens. We're citizens of heaven and we're citizens of earth. And the scripture directs that we're to honor our earthly leaders because their authority is established by God. Their authority is established by God. You know, we, we obey the law. We pay the, we're to pay our taxes. The scripture says we're to pray for those that are in authority. We're, we're to pray that we'll have peaceful relationships with them so that we can live a life of peace. But at the same time, we, as we honor and obey earthly rulers, as believers, we have to honor and obey the Lord. Caesar's not God. Donald Trump's not God. Justin Trudeau's not God. Governments cannot enforce 
religion, but neither can they restrict the freedom of people to worship. And really the best citizens of a nation are those who do this. They, they honor their country because they worship God. Worship God first, so then we honor our country. We honor our leaders. I mean, obviously we see here, man, man bears, we as believers, bear the image of God. And so we owe everything to God. We owe everything to God. You know, Caesar's image was on that coin, but God's image is on you. God's image is on me. And sin marred that image, but in Christ, that image is being restored. And and Jesus' point is really this, because, because man is made in the image of God, mankind, you and I, belong to God. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to God what is God's. Surrender your life to him. We, we, we say things like, may the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. Scripture tells us to offer our bodies to the Lord as living sacrifices. Teaches us to meditate upon his word. We're to offer ourselves to the Lord in all of these areas. Well, in this confrontation with these guys, verse 22 tells us that when, when they heard what Jesus said, they marveled. And they left him and went away. And then verse 23, the same day the Sadducees came to him. who say that there is no resurrection. Now I just think about the Sadducees. They believed that, that there was no resurrection. And I just think, what hope is that? Don't you think that? Like, I mean, imagine if you remove the resurrection. It's removing the resurrection of Christ too from Christianity. There's no hope in that. And obviously that's why they were so sad, you see. Got to do that one every time, you know. The Sadducees brought this next question. They were a religious group, and, and here was their thing. They only accepted the authority of the f- first five books of your Bible, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. They only accepted the authority of those scriptures. And so they did not believe in the spirit world. They did not believe in the doctrine or the reality of resurrection, Some of their history is this, is that in their battles with the Pharisees, they would bring up this question and they would say to the Pharisees, prove to us the reality of the resurrection, but here's the hitch. You got to do it from the first five books of the Bible. You got to do it from the books of Moses. That's the only word that we accept. So you got to prove the resurrection from that. And, and the Pharisees, uh, sought to fulfill that challenge, but they really had not had any success. And so what, what the Sadducees are pulling out here is their ace in the sleeve. This is their move, man. It's like, you know, you know that person that you argue with and then, you know, you're arguing, you're arguing. And then when, right when you think you got them, they pull out the ace in the sleeve every time and they never leave this one particular argument. This was the Sadducees. Well, what about the resurrection? This is their heavy artillery and they roll it out and they ask them the question, Verse 24, saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third down to the seventh, all after them all, the woman died and in the resurrection, therefore of the seven, Whose wife shall they, will she be? For they all had her. Now, first thing I think is that poor woman. <laughs> so I have to believe that this was a hypothetical situation they're presenting here. It's just, you know, like I said, this is the ace up the sleeve. It's, I think it's pretty hypothetical. But the, the Sadducees were referencing this law in the book of Moses. We've talked about it, you know, uh, quite a bit over the last little while in the summer when we were going through uh, the book of Ruth, but uh, they were referencing uh, the Levirate marriage. In, in those days, you know, the handing down of an inheritance was really important. The, the survival of a family name was really important. Uh, the passing on of the physical promised land to the next generation was part of God's blessing. And so Moses instructed that in a case... Where a man died without an heir, his brother was to marry the widowed wife and he was to produce an heir so that the name of the deceased would live on. 
So the Sadducees, they come up with this hypothetical situation. It's, it's really ridiculous if you read it right. I think it's supposed to be humorous. I don't know. It's ridiculous. And remember that really behind their question is this. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. This is only an imaginary difficulty. Really, it's, it's imaginary because really what it was, was it's an excuse for unbelief. You know, a lot of people do that with Jesus. They create imaginary arguments, you know. You've been in those kind of conversations. People consider those arguments intellectual. But really, lots of times it's just a cover, an excuse for the rejection of Jesus. An excuse for unbelief. Usually at the heart, it's exactly that. Just an excuse for unbelief. And I, and I, I hear this question, it's ridiculous. But look at verse 29, it says, But Jesus answered them, he said, you are wrong because you, need, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So the Sadducees, Jesus says, you, you're, you're wrong on two levels. You don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. You know, one of the mistakes that so many people make is to as, as, assume that eternity that the other side of the grave is just an extension of this life, that everything's the same on the other side. Just a continuance. But Jesus explains here, he says, in heaven, in eternity, relationships are different. They're different than they are on earth. And he, he continues, verse 31, as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. You know, what's cool about this is that Jesus answered their claim that there was no resurrection by quoting from the books of Moses, answering what the Pharisees could not do for the Sadducees. Jesus quotes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And as he quotes, you know, what we see is that God did not say, I was, past tense, past tense, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is the God of the living. Heaven is real. Eternity is a reality. God is not the God of the dead. You know, when you think about it, their difficulty regarding the resurrection, maybe your difficulty regarding the resurrection, is no difficulty at all when the question of God is settled in your heart and in your mind. You know, I think about these guys, you know what they were missing? Genesis 1.1, which is this, in the beginning, God. I mean, that answers a lot of questions right there. In the beginning, God, for my finite little mind... That answers a lot of questions. When a man or woman understands the truth that the Bible reveals concerning God, then, then whatever difficulties we find in the Bible about mankind, they kind of disappear into thin air if you'll grasp how God, try to grasp how, God, how big God is. Jesus said, you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. If you, if you knew who God is, if you knew what the word of God declared, then you'd have no problem with the resurrection. You'd have no problem with heaven. You'd have no problem with the supernatural working of God. God is the God of the living. He took dust and he formed it and he breathed life into it and there was Adam. Adam became a living being. The image of God, imago Dei. And, and Jesus didn't say anything about the resurrection, which is interesting. All he did was affirm that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. They're alive. They're not dead. They're living. And that is the hope of eternal life. You know, that's why we see in the, in the New Testament, man, we don't, we don't die. We go to sleep, the scripture says. To be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. And one day God's going to give a new body for us to make home. I, I like this quote I came across by Campbell Morgan. He said this, 
The degradation of human thinking about man is due to a degraded concept of God. See, when you have an exalted view of God, when you exalt the Son, be lifted up, Jesus, when we hold Jesus up and we hold his word high and we hold his character and his nature high, you, you have to recognize that what is impossible with me is possible with him. That what is impossible, though things are impossible with man, all things are possible with God. And so we have to say, therefore, if God said it, if he said it, that's how it is. If God said it, then it's reality because what is impossible for me is totally possible with him because God has the power to fulfill his word. Their problem was their low view of God. And Jesus says, you're wrong. I love how just straight up that is, right? I'm like, man, sometimes I should just say that to people a little more clearly. You're wrong. <laughs> you don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished. They were astonished at his teaching. In particular, I think the, the Pharisees were really happy. Yeah, stick it to those Sadducees, Jesus. So they kind of kept it quiet, though, because, you know, they hated Jesus, too. But this provided an opportunity for them. So they jump in. Verse 34. Third group comes to question Jesus. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? The Old Testament, we know this has 613 commands, man. That's, if you boil the law and you put it into its list, 613 of them. And in that time, the Pharisees, the scribes, had divided up those 613 laws. And they'd said, these ones are positive and these ones are, are negative laws. There are 248 positive and there are 365 that we are going to determine are negative. And they taught this. Well, nobody has the hope of obeying all 613 laws. So let's make it easier. We'll divide them up, good and bad, or positive and negative. And we'll place greater importance on some and lesser importance on others. And so there amongst the Pharisees, there, there was this discussion going on regularly. What's the greatest of the commandments? What's good? What's bad? What can we kind of leave out and focus over here because it's so hard to fulfill the whole thing and let's not worry about these, what they were calling lesser laws. And the fallacy is, this is that the Bible teaches us that when you break one of God's laws, you're a lawbreaker. James declares that if you break one, you break them all. A lawbreaker is a lawbreaker and falls short of the glory of God. And so, the Pharisees send in a lawyer. And I think somewhere there's a joke there. I don't know. You know, you know what they say, the difference between um, a leech and a lawyer? When you're dead, the leech quits sucking your blood. <laughs> so they send in the lawyer and they want to spark a controversy. Verse 37, and he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Let's read that again. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Jesus went right to the heart of the law. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first and greatest commandment. An Orthodox Jew would recite this passage every single day. It's called, you, you've heard the word probably if you've kicked around church, it's called the Shema. They, they take this passage of scripture, an Orthodox Jew, and they, they, you know the boxes that they wear on their head? It's called a phylactery. It's got a piece of scripture inside of it, and they wrap it around, they put this verse in there. So they say, this is what my mind is to think on. They take that same passage, the Shema, and they put it on the mezuzah that goes on the doorposts of the home because they say, this is, this is the structure of our home. This is the rule for our home. When we go through this threshold, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The passage goes on. It's worth 
going home and reading Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so no surprise that Jesus would name the Shema, but he went on and he said this, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Notice that Jesus doesn't say the second is like it. He says a second is like it. These two commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor, don't stand independent of one another. They're not independent. They're totally linked together. The ability to love God and to love people are inseparable. Which means something. I mean, I find this convicting. If I don't love someone, what does it say about my love for God? It's inseparable for God. You love God, you love people. And love for God expresses itself in obedience to his commands. We say this, the the law is summed up. All of the law is summed up in one word. Love. And if we love God, then we will love our neighbor. You know, one doesn't need a lawyer to understand that. (laughs) You just need love. To understand all of God's law, what you need is love. And so here's Jesus in this, these discussions with these fellows as they're checking him out. He's faced and answered three difficult questions. He dealt with, you know, relationship. We just skim real fast here this morning between government and religion, you know, between this life and the next, between God and our neighbors, really important, helpful stuff, life-directing stuff for all of us. But there was one more question, a question that was more important than all the others. But this time, it's Jesus who's going to ask the question. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until you make your, until I put your enemies under your feet. That's from Psalm 110. We read it earlier. Verse 45. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? It sounded like a theological question. It is a theological question, but in reality, I mean, this is the most important question that these men, these men would ever answer. It's essentially this question, you know. Jesus worded it one way for his disciples. He said to them, Matthew chapter 16, to Peter, who do you say that I am? But now to those who are resisting him, he asked it in another way, but in many ways it's the same question. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus asked it this way, whose son, is, whose son is the Messiah? And they knew the answer. I mean, you could look all over Scripture and you can see it. He's the son of David. That's why they were ripping mad on Palm Sunday. Because when they said, Hosanna to the son of David, the crowd was acknowledging, he's the Messiah. But then Jesus asked a second question. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? You see, in Jewish culture... A man would never call his son Lord. I mean, dads, you think about that <laughs> over my freaking dead body. <laughs> we'll learn another lesson about who's in charge. But a man would never call his son Lord. And so the Jews knew that this referred to the Messiah. They knew Psalm 110. Only the Messiah could sit at the right hand of God at the right hand of Jehovah, which means this. It means that he's God. But if he's David's son, it means that he's man. The Jews couldn't reconcile this issue that they saw in the scripture. They were confused about the identity of the Messiah. In fact, when you read about it, the, 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 the Jews had, had saw these two pictures of the Messiah and they couldn't reconcile them. And so many of them believed that there was actually two Messiahs. One picture showed him as a suffering servant. The other picture showed him as a conquering and 
reigning king seated at the right hand of the Father. You know, still today, amongst uh, the Jewish culture, that they, they, they teach their people not to read Isaiah 53. You ever get in a conversation with somebody that's Jewish and you want to bring them to Jesus? Isaiah 53 is the best passage to turn them to and say, let's look at this. Their, their teachers, uh, you know, say that it refers to the Holocaust, but if you've read Isaiah 53, another great one to go home and read today, it's a very clear description of Jesus on the cross and the suffering that he went through as the suffering servant. And so in the mind of the, the, this crowd in front of Jesus as he questioned these leaders, the question was this, how, how could God's servants suffer and die? There's got to be two messiahs. You know, I think had they just listened to Jesus, they, they would have learned that there's only one Messiah. He's called the root and the offspring of David. Son of man and son of God. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Both human and divine. Jesus is David's son and he's David's Lord. The son of man, the son of God. He who would die for the sacrifice die as the sacrifice for their sins and, and rise from the dead and become the first fruits of the resurrection. And these religious leaders, they, they had their own ideas, you know. If they could have caught what Jesus was saying in this moment, that the Spirit was saying, Jesus said, why did David say this? By the Spirit. They could have caught what the Spirit had said, but they didn't want to change, you know. They didn't want to accept his word. They didn't want to repent and believe. They were happy in unbelief. Uh, and so they didn't respond. But the result was this. Is that day as they were testing the Lamb of God, they found a flaw in Him. Nothing. Perfect. Spotless. Sinless. Without defect. Son of man, Son of God. And the result that day was, that, that day the the enemies of Jesus were silenced. Now I'll come to him again. This is it. That's it. Now he goes on to teach the crowds until they come. The next time they come, it's in Gethsemane. Look at verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Not a word, no more questions. You know, I think about this text, I think this, you know, it tells us this, and we know this. Making a decision for Jesus is a matter of life and death. And the evidence is all there for those who are willing to open their hearts and open their eyes and open their ears and want to see. You know, if you honestly and humbly look at the word of God you will discover the truth of who Jesus is and you'll believe and you'll be saved with just honest, humble looking. And these leaders were blinded. There were, there were lots of things in their lives that blinded them. Their religion, you know, their position, their power, blinded by their politics, blinded by their selfish pride. They could not see the truth to just Receive and believe in Jesus. You know, I, I pray that none of us here would make that same mistake. To just not see in the simplicity of who he is and say, Jesus, you're God. I'm not. My righteousness is as rags. I need you to clothe me in salvation. Jesus, save me. You know, it's... I, I think on this text, a few verses popped out to me, and I want to point them out to you this morning. Just three quick things for some takeaway application. Verse 9, Jesus instructed his servants to go out and invite as many to come. And I, I just want to encourage you, church, invite as many as you can, you know? Invite as many as you find. You know why? Because when you do that, you're partnering with the work of the Holy Spirit. That's his work. He's inviting. Come, come. You know, come. 
The simple thing you can do to do that, you know, maybe you're like, I'm not comfortable with like sharing the gospel with someone. Invite them to church. That's an easy invitation. You know, as I was thinking about this, I just thought, and I'm so thankful for our church. Thankful for the Riverside crew that's here. You know, like this past year, Brent and I got lot, yapping lots on the phone and, and it was really neat to watch as God's just blessed their church and they went from one service to two services. And I thought, wow. You know, I'm like, I'm looking forward to the day when God wants to do that here. Oh, there's only so much room. That's fine. We'll go to two services. Maybe one day we'll get to go to three. Invite. Just invite people. Look at the kingdom. Who's around the table? The good and the bad. Don't worry what they're like. Don't worry. I, I'm not worried about cleaning people up. It's not my job. We, we send out the invitation. We teach the word. We let God do the work. God's spirit wins people. Invite them. And God's in strategically placed you all over this community in, in jobs, in, in neighborhoods, on streets, making friends, in this group or that group. Invite people. And nobody ever gets mad at me when I invite them to church. I just found that. I mean, it's, it's an invitation. It's like, it's like saying, come to a wedding. Well, I'm not coming to your wedding. It's like, what the heck? Maybe you got that at your wedding, but <laughs> I hope it wasn't your spouse that said that. Invite people. You know, I just, I was always thinking about this. I just thought, man, we want to see God move in this community. The second thing I want to remind you of is this, a takeaway from verse 21. Give, the, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar and give to God the things that are God's. You and I were made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. Offer yourself to him. The Jews got real religious, but there's great pictures. That word of God on the mind. Love the Lord your God. Jesus, I'm going to meditate on you. Jesus, I'm going to offer my body to you. Jesus, I'm going to make you the meditation of my heart. Ask the Lord, God, restore your image more and more in my life. Restore it. I'm made in your image. And the last thing I want to just give you as a takeaway is this, that greatest commandment from verse 37 to 39. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And love God and love people. It's so simple. Don't you love that the gospel just comes down so simple all the time? Can't save myself, Jesus? Please save me. Okay, done. Now what? Just love me. Love others. That's what matters in the kingdom. And man, when we, when we love God, when we love God, we'll give to God what is God's. And when we love our neighbors, man, we'll say, come to the wedding. Come to the wedding feast. Amen.